I do want to thank you for allowing me to come this morning. I'm grateful to Rob and to your session and to you for this great privilege. I love coming here. It's, it's like another home. So Merry Christmas to you all, and thank you for letting me come into your home, which I feel like is my home. The text for the sermon today is what's printed in the bulletin. It's Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18. It's that story we know, I think, of the wise man from the east and Herod's reaction to the birth of Jesus. But like everything else in the New Testament, if we're going to understand this story, we have to look back. If we were here with a limitless amount of time, the background that I would give you for this story is I would start with Genesis 1-1 and read all the way through Malachi because that is the background for this story. But I'm going to have to pick just one verse, one verse to help you understand what's going on in this story of the wise men and Herod. And it's from Genesis 3, the story of the fall of man. You remember it, don't you? God has created Adam and Eve for himself. He's placed them in the garden of delight and given them everything but the fruit of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes and he tempts Eve and Eve eats the fruit and she gives some to her husband, Adam, who's been standing by watching the whole thing. The one who should have at that point crushed the serpent's head didn't. And he ate, and their eyes were opened, and everything changed. Well, the Lord comes in the evening, as is his custom, and he calls out for Adam. But our first parents are hiding. They're ashamed. But they come, and the story of what they have done is told The Lord confronts them with their sin. And now, in verse 3:15, the Lord pronounces a judgment on the serpent. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, that's it. That's the background of this story of Herod's response to the birth of Jesus. Don't for a minute think that this story is not going on in the spiritual realm, this conflict, this struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I can't preach on that because I don't know exactly what was going on in the spiritual realm. But I can preach on this. I do know what was happening in Jerusalem on that day. And this is the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they were no more. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to you, Lord Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, Word of God incarnate, your light, life is the light of man. Cleanse our hearts of faithlessness and superstition. Send your Holy Spirit upon us and among us that we may understand what you are teaching, that we may love your truth, that we may walk in your ways. 
And do this, we pray, for the glory of your name, together with the Father and the Holy Ghost, one God forever and ever. Amen. When I was here a few weeks ago, I mentioned one of my favorite Christmas carols, See Amid the Winter Snow. I quoted one of the verses for you, but I didn't say anything about the refrain. Well, today I am. This is the refrain to that Christmas carol. Hail, thou ever-blessed morn, hail, redemption's happy dawn. Sing through all Jerusalem, Christ is born in Bethlehem. That's the line. Christ is born in Bethlehem. That's the good news that was revealed when those unlikely Gentiles from the East, those wise men who came to worship Jesus, came to Jerusalem, the city of the King. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Mary, had been born this Seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the serpent's head. This seed of Abraham in Genesis 22, the one who would possess the gates of his enemies and bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's why we're here, you know. Because the seed of Abraham came And our ancestors, Gentiles all, were blessed. And we're here now. Jesus is also the royal son of David in Psalm 72, the one before whom all kings will fall down, the one who delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Jesus is the one who has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. And he redeems their life from oppression and violence. Jesus is also the son of righteousness in Malachi 4. He is risen with healing in his wings, the grace of which the law and the Psalms and the prophets all bore witness is put before the wise man's eyes, Herod's eyes, our eyes, as John Calvin writes. The long-promised, sought-for, longed-for ruler and shepherd of God's people has been born. And the promise of Zephaniah 3 at last is fulfilled. The King of Israel, the Lord, was in their midst. The mighty warrior promised from the moment of humanity's corruption by sin has come. And of all the cities on the face of the earth, all Jerusalem should have rejoiced and sung at the news. There should have been shouts of joy, hymns and psalms of exaltation. The people of God should have been dancing in the streets. 
But that's not what happened, is it? So far from rejoicing at the news of Jesus' birth, Herod the king was troubled. And understand this, brothers and sisters, when seed of the serpent kings like Herod are troubled, everybody else had better be troubled too. And so they were. All Jerusalem was troubled with him. You see, Herod was surprised by the news that the wise men brought, and kings like Herod do not like to be surprised. They think that they are the ones in control of things, and surprises make their apparent hold on things seem weak and fragile. Herod ruled by fear. He ruled by violence and surprises, especially surprises like the story of another king. They undermine the fear that they seek to rule by because surprises like that can offer hope. And the last thing serpent kings want for their people is hope. You have to understand, for the Herods of this world, fear and violence, the sense of hopelessness that fear and violence create, it is always their way of governance. I don't care if they respect me as long as they fear me the emperor Caligula is supposed to have said. It is better to be feared than to be loved if one cannot be both, Niccolo Machiavelli wrote in The Prince, because fear is a better motivator than love, he thought. Joseph Stalin is supposed to have said in the face of the famine in the Ukraine that he precipitated, he said, it is better to be, no, he said, if only one man dies of hunger, that's a tragedy. But if millions die, that's only a statistic. You see, Herod's kingdom, like Caligula's, like Stalin's, was a kingdom governed by fear and violence. And so, from the first news of Jesus' arrival, those who most should have welcomed him instead plotted his destruction. The rulers who should have guarded Jesus, who should have protected him, they took counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, as Psalm 2 says. Realizing that power can never be secure, the Herods of this world know no limit when they sense that their tenuous holds on power are threatened, Stanley Hauerwas writes. Even so, 
The Herods of this world believe that they ought to be, that they somehow can be in control of everything. And so this crafty serpent king Herod plots to protect his power. Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him, he told the wise man. Not for a second, intending anything but Jesus' death. The wise men were fooled for a moment. But when the Lord came to them in a dream and warned them, These Gentiles believed, and they foiled Herod's plot. And realizing that he had been tricked, what happened? Herod was furious. He didn't control anything in that moment. And you know the result. What's a few dead babies In the grand scheme of my kingdom, the heralds of this world think. It's just a statistic. Herod didn't. He couldn't welcome Jesus as the long-promised Redeemer King because he understood at once the political significance of Jesus' birth. What is politics? Politics is governance. It's how things will be done and by whom they will be done. And so Herod saw a rival. Herod knew there can only be one king of the Jews and it will be me. So for him, the birth of the king of the Jews precipitated a political crisis because in Jesus, Herod understood and recognized a rival, someone who threatened to undo his kingdom. We have a hard time understanding that, I think. The church, especially the church here in the United States, has over the centuries softened the hard, real-world edges of the incarnation of the Son of God, of Jesus' reign as King. Rob talked about this unbelieving comedian in the UK and her Christless Christmas. You see, it's easy to gush. Certainly the world around us gushes, and even Christians can fall into this trap, to gush about the sweet baby Jesus. Babies in a manger are no threat to anyone. And so we hear saccharine, sentimental songs about animals and mangers and little drummer boys. 
And we act as though Jesus were somehow still wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And the world takes comfort in that because as I said, swaddled babies present no challenge, no danger. That's not how the scriptures present it. Simeon's comment to the Holy Family in Luke 2 was somewhat different than the way the world celebrates the baby Jesus. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Jesus' mother, this child is destined to be a sign that will be rejected and you too will be pierced to the heart. Many in Israel will stand or fall because of him, and so the secret thoughts of many will be laid bare. That's not a very sentimental Christmas song, is it? See, people can do this because we've been seduced. Christians can react in this way, the, the way the world wants us to react, because we've been seduced into thinking our faith is the way the culture around us sees it. It's an internal, it's a private thing. We go into a secret chamber to worship God. One particularly annoying ad this Christmas time repeatedly says, you do you, boo. Well, that's what the world is happy for us to do as long as we stay within the walls of our church houses. We're encouraged from outside the church and unfortunately sometimes from within to concentrate our faith, our pursuit of holiness such as it is on our own personal morality. And we take comfort in Jesus' words to Pilate when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. We read that and we look to the heavens and really we have no idea what Jesus meant. See, Jesus never preached some sort of otherworldly internal spiritual kingdom that has nothing to do with the nuts and bolts of everyday life of the flesh and blood people who follow him. We are not to be complacent with ignoring public justice and equity, with public righteousness and care for others. Jesus did not mean my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Jesus was telling Pilate that his kingdom isn't like the kingdoms of Herod. His kingdom isn't built or governed or maintained by fear and violence. The Herods of this world brings all of his people in with a hook. He drags them up with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices as in, and is glad 
Habakkuk says, that's the kingdoms of this world. It's not Jesus' kingdom. Jesus told Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, if it was like Herod's kingdom, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. The kingdoms of, the kingdoms from this world are those that are set up against God and his anointed, that are opposed to Christ. But Jesus' kingdom is godly, is just, is righteous and equitable. Do you want to know what Jesus' kingdom is really like? Read Psalm 72. There you will see the grand and glorious kingdom that we in Christ have inherited. So what does this mean for the kingdoms of this world? As I've said before, many Christians think that Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with. It poses no threat to Herod's kingdom or Caesar's kingdom or Stalin's kingdom. But you see, God in Christ has laid claim to everything. His rule is universal. The good news of the gospel from the prophet Isaiah is, our God reigns as king. And Jesus Christ, one of us, Brothers and sisters, one of us is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him by the Father. So then what of all the Herods, the Caligulas, the Putins, the Xi Jinpings and Bidens and Trumps of this world? Psalm 2 has an answer for them. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What of us, we who are blessed to take refuge in him? God in Christ, in all that Jesus has done by his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the Spirit, God has planted his city the church in the midst of the kingdoms of this world is an outpost of the world to come in this present age, the city of God in the midst of the city of man. And brothers and sisters, you and I and everyone who is united to Christ by faith and baptism 
We are citizens of that kingdom, of that city. In fact, we are kings. Is that how you see yourself? A king in the city of God? Because in our union with Christ, who have we received? That same Jesus as king. And we share in that anointing. And we're called and empowered by God to fight with a pure heart and a good conscience in a sincere faith against sin and the devil. We do it privately for sure in our own lives. But we're also called to do it publicly in the world. We are, by God's good grace, and this is a very great blessing of our salvation, involved in what Peter Lightheart has called God's Urban Renewal Project. The city of God planted among the city of man, and we are a city with a mission. You and I, the whole church everywhere, are people with a mission to live by faith in a hope that brings to the greatest extent possible the life of the age to come into this present age. Whatever your calling in life, this is your mission. Where do we begin? Well, I think our profession of faith this morning is an excellent place to begin, to remember who we are and to whom we belong, that we are not doing this all in our own strength. All of those things that Rob said the world teaches us are for us untrue because we belong to so great a Savior. And then you, you learn more and more about that where? Right here. Doing what we're doing this morning. Worship for it is the gathered people of God that we're, it's here as the gathered people of God that we're being built up by the outward and ordinary means of grace. You come here and are prepared for the mission that God has given his city. And so we hear the word of God that tears our worlds apart and rebuilds them. The word that teaches us to live as who we are. Little kings after the great king in the city of God. We have the sacraments that strengthen our union with Christ, that nourish and encourage our faith. We have fellowship with one another in prayer. And as we sing, encouraging one another in psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, all this is at work, building you up, preparing you. Every man, every woman, every child preparing you to go out into the world to do the work that Christ has given us to do. To do. 
Are you a husband? Love your wife with the self-denying love of Christ. Are you a wife? Respect and submit to your husband in Christ, responding to him as the church responds to Christ. Are you a parent? Remember the vows that you took at the time of your child's baptism and be faithful to those vows. Are you a child? Respect and honor your parents as they fight against the world to bring you up in the way of Christ. Are you an employer? Deal fairly with your employees. Recognize that the bottom line isn't everything. And so far as possible, know your employees or at least make sure that your managers do. Are you an employee? Do a fair day's work. Be cheerful and thankful for the job that you have. Find ways to love your fellow workers, even the ones who are unlovable. Look out for your employer's interests. Lawyers, fight for justice and truth. Everyone, as you are able, wherever you are, shine the light of Christ into the dark corners of this present age. I could go on and on. I have a friend. He's involved in natural resource management, waters and fishes. We were talking about this very thing the other night, how in his line of work, He's doing what the Lord told Adam to do, stewarding this very good creation of the Lord's. I said something to him that even the pagans can do that. Pagans can do many good and beneficial things. He agreed. And then he said this. But what I've recognized is that many of my unbelieving fellow workers worship the earth. Well, it's one thing to worship a river. It's a very different thing to worship the God who created the river. Only Christians can do that. Only Christians can do what they're doing for the glory of God and for the building up of his kingdom on earth. This isn't easy. It's not a comfortable life, being a little king in service to a great king. So many people treat their work as a means of achieving a comfortable life. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable. There's no virtue in seeking out misery. But if we cut corners or look away when others do, if we become images of this world instead of pursuing the grace of the image of God given to us, well then really we're just little Herods, not little Christs. 
Peter Lightheart says in another place, whatever Christian living is, it is not without a risk. It always involves witness, and witness is always potential martyrdom. When you and I are faithful in our words and our work, we shine the light of God into the world. That's what Jesus told us to do, isn't it? In the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others. And if we suffer, we end up bearing the bond marks of Christ before the world. Brothers and sisters, understand this. God is no one's debtor. And whether you succeed or you fail, when you are doing the work of Christ in this world, you succeed. Win or lose, in Christ you win. The wise men, these Gentiles who were by the Apostle Paul's testimony excluded from the community of Israel, strangers to God's covenants and the promises that go with them, they're the ones who put the chief priests and scribes to everlasting shame. Because instead of being troubled, these wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw the way to Jesus. And when they found him, what did they do? They fell down and worshiped him. I have no doubt when they went home and continued doing whatever they had been doing, they were not the same men who had set out on that journey to Jerusalem. They were kings indeed in service to the great king. You go and do likewise. Wherever you go, whatever you do, know that you are Christ's agents, his little kings in the world. And it is through you, bit by bit, here a little, there a little. God in Christ is transforming the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ until his Christ comes again and every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses even the Herods of this world, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.